Hi everyone, my name is Andrew Smith. Deborah is off this week. I'm not sure where actually. You uh, know Deborah as well as I do. She's probably on a stage somewhere, incredibly awesome, telling some incredible story. So you're stuck with just me today. That's right, it's the Andrew Smith Spectacular. Uh, you're welcome. Um, I'm going to uh, use the time, I think, to just have a little bit of a. I've had so many conversations around like innovation abyss. Uh, the idea that, you know, there's so much that everyone in retail wants to do, but we're struggling to kind of get traction in it. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, obviously, this, you know, we've seen a lot of news here around JCPenney, the Coles conversations, some Lego stuff. Uh, the metaverse, of course, pops back out again and some more. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to go. For those of you who haven't already switched off after hearing it's just little old me, let's just get stuck into it. First up, I want to tell a quick story. Um, I am a, a recovering perfectionist. Um, it is, uh, it came from, uh, my dad actually, which I, I adore my dad. He's an incredible, inspiring human being, um, and has done incredible things in his life. Uh, but one of the things that he's done is made, turned me into a, a an incredibly, uh, uh, you know, nervous and anxious perfectionist. It's, I think it started, this story has stuck with me for an awfully long time. I, uh, played cricket, uh, as a kid, a sport, probably not that uh, well known, to a lot of you, but let's just assume for a second, it's kind of like baseball. Um, and uh, I scored uh, 99 one day, which uh, obviously is one short of 100 and 100 is a huge milestone. It's a big thing. It's monstrous. 99 is still a good score, good score, but you know, whatever. Uh, and I came off the, the pitch incredibly disappointed. Um, and my dad walked over to me and said, 99, that's pretty good. But what happened to the other one? Uh, and I remember that speech for so many different reasons. Uh, again, he followed it up with a joke and um, obviously made sure I was supported and congratulated me. He's an awesome dad. Please don't take away from this that he isn't. But um, it was just it just instilled this kind of idea of like, you know, you know, well done, dad. You just created a perfectionist. And I think, you know, for me, um, the work that I get to, I get to hang out with retailers and talk to them about ideas that they want to create, you know, new ideas that they want to pursue, ideas that competitors have rolled out that they now need to catch up on, all of that kind of stuff. It's always about pace and how do you kind of get it out uh, to market as fast as humanly possible. And, you know, with so much energy and capital, thanks inflation, uh, being focused on innovation at the moment and creating new stuff, uh, basically my inbox is full of people talking about how do I do this faster? How do I do more? All of this kind of fun stuff. And, um, you know, I thought, Essentially, it'd be nice to just share a couple of the the instances and the stories that I've had in the last the last couple of weeks about this exact thing. So, to my perfect uh, perfectionist story, innovation is about progress, not perfection. And the brands that do it really, really, really well are those who understand that, who acknowledge that progress is where I want to get to. Um, too often, we're built up to uh, you know believe that everything every uh, I has to be dotted, T has to be crossed. Very impressed I got that right. I usually screw it up. Um, and uh, and people just you know get caught up and distracted from actually making progress because they're too busy chasing this perfectionist mindset. But what I found in retail brands who are really good at innovation is they understand that practice doesn't make perfection. It just starves us from creating new stuff. Um, and it is, uh, you know, the brands that are just willing to run and try different things and be imperfect uh, that actually get stuff done. And, uh, you know, in other words, too much focus on what we're really, really good at now will lead to some good results, but not great results, because it means we end up missing all of the new stuff. So change it up. Spend some meeting times on crazy ideas, dress up as a pirate and go on a treasure hunt with your team. I have actually done that. In fact, I do that quite regularly. Uh, it's one of the cool parts about my job. I get to dress up as a pirate every now and again.
Uh, allocate some non-working capital, running at ideas, build systems, a whole bunch of stuff that you can do. But, you know, probably the most is just get out and talk to people, like hear from frontline, real, really hear from them. Don't just kind of have superficial PR visits to stores and stuff like that. Um, usually helps uh, helps brands grow. Uh, and then the other one is like cultural stuff. People always say, you know, hypothetical people always go, Andrew, uh, what should I think about mostly in terms of culture? And like the biggest one for me, like from a, like one of the most underrated anyway, cultural traits in high performing retail businesses uh, is resilience. And we, and the analogy that I like to use here is we always have this conversation that social media has, you know, made us all feel the need to be perfect and kind of grow on that perfectionist mindset. And in, in business, and in particular in retail, it's exactly the same thing. We always see other brands that seem to be doing some amazing thing and we freak out about it and we feel like we need to be doing it too, uh, even though they're probably looking at us and our recent announcements saying the exact same thing. And building in resilience um, is something that leaders have to craft. It has to be deliberate. Um, so we like, and this is, you know, a, a rant warning. Um, People who use like the buzz statements, like fail fast, fail forward, blah, 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 all of those kinds of things, like that is not what it's actually about. Failure is always going to feel crap because it's biological. It's a chemical reaction. We can't just celebrate it all of a sudden because then all of, you know, you're building up this weird um, dichotomy and this juxtaposition of my emotions. We can't just do that. We've got to actually build resilience. It's like, hey, that, that didn't work. That's okay. Let's move on. Um, and, you know, you have to you have to essentially design an ov- to overcome it. Um, and resilience is one of the ways that you can do that. So how do you build teams that stay stronger and strive more, but also bounce back faster when things don't go to plan? So like my, I guess my nudge there would be um, fail fast. Don't, don't fail fast, but instead like build and celebrate resilience. People that, you know, the bounce back is the bit where celebration occurs. The failure is the part where learning occurs. Anyway, that's enough of my ranting. Um, there's lots happening in retail right now. Um, I was reading a story the other day about uh, Lego. Uh, Lego's tripling its digital team as it continues to make um, just the most ridiculous levels of growth, uh, you know, pretty much worldwide too, which is amazing. Um, you know, I have lots of questions about Lego and its sustainability. I was very excited to see a recycling element uh, to their stores and a re circularity piece um, in their store strategies now. And they've announced obviously some some pretty big investments in team and and work to try and make the production of small, painful to step on square bricks uh, a little more sustainable than it is right now. But, um, you know, their campaign, which I'm obsessed with, called Adults Welcome, um, is just paying off tremendously. It's been, um, you know, the brand partnerships that they're doing is just really, really cool. Um, so they've, they've, they're just doing some amazing stuff. I'm interested about what, what they, you know, they do next, though. Um, I saw a quote from uh, uh, their chief digital and technology officer about our digital transformation is one of the single largest investments the Lego Group will make in a generation um, which is probably not that surprising. The, the product hasn't evolved that much, just the partnerships and the way that we put the blocks together are. But um, I think the fact that they're willing to do stuff like this is super cool. About a month ago, I remember they announced their partnership with Epic Games to create a child-friendly metaverse space. You all know my views on metaverse. Um, in fact, I really, I, I, I must admit, I, I felt a little bit of a told-you-so moment 
um, which is so grossly unfair because I'm not as smart as most of the people making comments about the metaverse. But when the Snap CEO um, uh, came out and called the the metaverse ambiguous and hypothetical, it's like that's ex- that's the language, that's the wording that I've been wanting to use. It's like it's a thing. It's going to be a thing. It's really interesting. Uh, but it's uh, still not known. It's still sitting in the abstract and we need to work it out. He's obviously making a big bet that uh, it's going to be an augmented version of reality rather than a fully virtual one that people are going to want, but which in and of itself is, is I don't know, that's an interesting debate. Um, I'm definitely not for a fully virtual one, but I am but one person. And as a designer, I must say, I, uh, I don't like listening to just one person's opinion. It makes me stupid. Um, anyway, the Lego... Uh, metaverse space is a really interesting concept. So they, they create this and partnership, partnering with Epic Games, I think is super smart. Epic Games can't do much wrong at the moment. Um, they, uh, they're flying as well. But this whole idea of, of focusing directly into that child-friendly space, making it uh, a place where, you know, utilizing the Lego brand too, to kind of give trust and, and, uh, and you know, a feeling of safety to it. Um, that parents are probably going to be craving, especially parents who have no freaking idea what the metaverse is. I had a great conversation with my mum about the metaverse. Uh, it wasn't great and it was very short, but it was basically, um, she said, I you know, read one article about it and then just said, oh, this is something that I will never have to worry about or care about. So I will stop reading the word anymore. Couldn't even give me the definition of it, which is exactly what I think most people have right now. So it's going to be really interesting how brands overcome that lack of understanding and maybe a rebrand might be needed at one point. But anyway, child's uh, child-friendly space for Lego, I think is super interesting. Um, it's uh, uh, it's coming in again, tremendous growth. Toys in the US, 13% year in year growth, I think I read the other day. Um, to something around 30 billion. So it's a huge space to play in and to keep owning and Lego's just absolutely flying. Uh, all right, the JC Penny and Coles news. Um, I've had, I have, uh, I'm, you know, my creative mind is hard to switch off. I love the idea of just going, hey, what would I do if? Um, it's really easy to do that when you don't actually have the pressure of a board and uh, shareholders staring at you and a whole bunch of people and a culture that's in your control. Um, but the, you know, the, the big offer, the whole plan here is what it's, it's a half and a quarter. I don't know how you would rate them out of one, are hopefully going to make one, I guess is the bet that they're trying to play here. Who knows? Um, but Simon and Brookfield obviously have been in the mall space, uh, well, more than smalls really, because they've got that partnership with Spark Group, uh, which is, sorry, partnership with Authentic Brands in Spark Group, which has brands already like, um, Aeropastel, Forever 21, Lucky Brand, Brook Brothers, those kinds of things. Um, so they've been in the retailer space before or have been for a while. So, but, um, it's going to be interesting to see what they do with it. There's, there's not a lot of physical overlap. So it would obviously open up a whole bunch of locations and markets, which I think in and of itself is interesting. And it might be all they're wanting to do is just open up new markets. But I kind of sat down and thought, well, what could they do with it? And here's the best ideas I could come up with, I suppose, um, so far. And I'd love, you know, Hey, Tweet at us. Tell us what you think. I'd love to hear more. But, you know, uh, obviously the, the the obvious one is that they just consolidate central teams, the brand relationships, all that kind of stuff, and try and reduce op- overall operating costs, become a little more efficient, increase margins, all that kind of fun stuff. But the brands themselves are so different that I'm not sure that would be a great call. Um, you know, it'll be a bunch of confusion in the market. Both of, both of them are struggling to get the growth numbers or, you know, any numbers. Um 
at the moment. So like it'll be interesting to I mean that could potentially exacerbate those problems. So that's the most the the only obvious one that I can think of of like the basic entry level I suppose benefit of the merger. Um the kind of I I guess we'll call it the equivalent of that is or maybe it's an it's that and uh, they could also go with the, the two name per market model. You know, they've got, as I said, not a huge amount of overlap. Potentially, it just becomes the next Dreyer's v Eddie's or Hardy's v Carl's Jr. Um, you know, whereas the you know the brands and the experience and and the central teams are all the same, but they operate across different parts of the the market with different branding. So that could be an and thing. But it, again, it doesn't seem like it's worth the eight point six billion dollar asking price. Um, they could spin it off in bits. Oh, rant warning. Um, you know, they, they pu- basically pull a sacks and get rid of the online business and spin it off. It's got a pretty decent value valuation on its own. Um, I think that's a terrible idea. Like, I think the, you know, my, my opinion on the sacks split has been pretty, pretty well published. I don't think uh, it was a smart plan. It was a short term capital grab. Um, and then the the things that they've the lock mechanisms of how to use each other's channels, whether it be digital or physical, and you know not being able to fulfil through each other's channels, I think is really scary. And as a shareholder, I'd ask so many questions um, about the actual long term value of it. I get the short term value, but you know, again, you know, if we're not in it for the long term. What are we in it for? Um, so yeah, so they could spin it off. I'm sure there'd be plenty of people who'd want to buy the brands uh, online spaces, but um, who knows. Um, they could uh, just, you know, leave both brands as it is and leverage relationships and try and grow their existing REIT model. Um, it seems too small for the effort, though, but essentially that, you know, they've got a bunch of mall estates across the country um, and essentially, you know, they'd be building new relationships or you know, acquiring new relationships with new brands. They could potentially be pivoting towards more profitable real estate sale model or rent models. Um, that's one option. But again, I don't know why you'd go to the effort, but. Who knows? Uh, if you've got $8.6 billion and you want to try something, who knows? Why not? Um, I think probably a couple that have um, the most uh, possibility or benefit potential, um, one of them's crazy, and let's talk about that one last, but the, they could bring in their mall experience and try and accelerate the shop-in-shop models that both have kind of gently been playing with. You know, Coles and JCPenney, I think both have Sephora store in stores. Obviously, Coles is pushing for lots of stuff. They're also fulfilling a bunch of Amazon returns and deliveries, et cetera, to try and bring footfall in. You know, they could really accelerate that. We've seen brands like Target do that and get some pretty uh, significant uh, returns um, and build. I mean, but they've also got some pretty incredible brands um, from Apple to Disney to Ulta um, that they've brought in. So, they, you know, they're creating the quote unquote new mall uh, in Target, perhaps the actual mall operators that are probably being threatened the most by that, i.e. Simon and Brookfield, could um, could benefit and bring their skills in and sit there and go, hey, well, we're too complete this game. Let's run straight at this Target model and see if we can do it better than them. I think they'll bring in some really, they'll have obviously more experience in it, but, you know, I think they'll bring in some mall experience sides of, you know, experience that I think would be super cool for customers that uh, potentially Target will one one day play with or probably have someone building a PowerPoint deck about it anyway. All right, what's the crazy option? The crazy option is to just go all in, combine, use the combined resources of both and just reinvent one brand to both brands 
one new brand, who knows, but just like create test sites, explore new ideas, unlock kind of like any benefits they get from cost consolidation and reinvest that into some um, non-working capital building, like just these stupid experiences. Um, I really love the idea of them becoming the haven for digital only brands. You see smaller kind of pop-up mini malls that are trying, like Beta is obviously one of the, the, the best examples, Showfield's another, that are trying to be the, you know, the mall, the physical space, like the retail as a service kind of model um, for digital brands or for startup brands. I think that's a really cool space. And potentially if you can nail the experience, you could you could do some great things with it. I don't know whether the Cole and JCPenney customer is right for it though. So that's where it could be, you know, a, a, or it may need a, a rebrand. But I just, I don't know, for some reason it makes my heart pump faster. Uh, that idea, I think that could be really, really cool. Um, and then all the big bold things that most brands have on top right box of both of their idealist and their risk and their risk register at the same time. Just try stuff that they've both always wanting been wanting to do. But now we've got, you know, less overall risk if we screw up one small test market. Um, you know, it doesn't have as big an impact on the PL. Anyway, that's my ramblings. We'll, we'll uh, it will be super interesting to uh, to see where it goes. Um, also this week, we've had a whole bunch of stuff on politics. Um, it's, uh, it's been interesting to see how retailers have responded to it the last, well, the last few weeks, really, it's been this almost this culmination of you can't be apolitical anymore, but if you are political, you have to play it incredibly, uh, smart or it can come back and, and bite you. Um, you know, there's obviously big, huge things happening in the world that, you know, doesn't matter which side of the the debate you're on are going to impact the way that we think about um, work and brand and customer experience and, and customer commentary and team culture and talent attraction and retention. Like all of this stuff will have an impact. You, you just in a world where everyone is so incredibly opinion, opinionated and making decisions, whether it be buying decisions or where I get employed or whatever, like, um, you know, about my values and, and who are you like minded? Um, we, you kind of just can't be apolitical anymore. Or if you, as I said, if you are, it's a bloody fine line and you probably need to be very, very careful with it. The big examples, of course, like, I mean, you know, Disney in Florida, um, Disney came out, made a political statement and then had its special tax, uh, status removed or revoked by the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. I think, um, you know, I don't know, I don't know what the board conversation would be about that. I think- you know, from a team point of view, I understand that the CEO probably needed to lean into the debate and have an opinion and and therefore give the company an opinion. Um, but uh, I think the board will also be saying, hey, we probably could have done a slightly better job of that um, and, you know, just had a more clean conversation with our team and with the market. That kind of enabled us to be a little more like whichever side you're on, we support the fact that you have the right to fabulous entertainment and that's where we want to lean. Um, and But we want to make sure that you're supported uh, through change, through uh, uh, benefits, through everything else that I need to do. Who knows? Uh, I'm not the CEO of Disney uh, um, and I can't imagine I'm getting a knock on the door anytime soon. So uh, it's all hypothetical for me. But I think in summary, this stuff's going to just keep happening. So, it will, you know, if you don't have plans... Or if your plan is to simply cross the bridge when you come to it, I don't think that's going to cut it. I think we all need to stop and sit down and go, what is the way that we are going to react when political things come our way or we get asked at a press conference or the market asks us, the customers do or our teams do? 
there's lots of stuff I think that's going to be um, fascinating to come in through there. Um, the DTC, rec- I've got a couple of reckonings um, that I think are that are really, really interesting um, and happening in market right now. DTC is probably um, the most fascinating and getting the most, you know, attention. Um, there's a whole bunch of DTC brands, obviously those that have gone, uh, that have IPO'd, gone to market. Um, and, uh, you know, the numbers are looking really, really scary um, for traditional retail models. They're not sustainable and they don't necessarily, they aren't necessarily making the, the headway that they want, whether it be Warby Parker or Allbirds. Um, you know, there's um, there's just a lot of conversation happening around that. And I think it's like, it's just vertical retail team and we probably just should stop calling it DTC and just call it retail and, you know, force ourselves to get to more traditional go-to-market models that we know work. We, we see incumbent brands that are just doing an incredible job of growing across all of the channels um, and seeing great results. And I think the fact that we've kind of siphoned them off and put them in this special bucket that allows investors to invest in them when actually they're not really that strong of a business model, they're just a really, really cool idea, is not going to hang around for very long. Uh, I think they're going to need a new, a, new, um, a new way of doing things. In fact, why can't one of them be Michael's JCPenney random? Who's going to be the big brand that's eventually going to try and replicate and win? No one's been able to do it properly. As I said, no, like there's been plenty of retail as a service attempts um, with malls or with brands or with store in stores or just stores themselves that haven't really, you know, smashed the market. Someone is sitting on a cool idea or a cool plan to do just that. And I think that will be um, super interesting. Uh, next reckoning is the great reckoning of social. I think, um, I'm pretty bullish on this one because I think, I, and it's, I, I think, you know, globally it's going to be felt long before here in the U S the U S doesn't regulate business, um, as quickly, um, as some other markets do, especially markets like the EU, uh, or my home market of Australia. Um, I don't, um, so I think, yeah, how to, how to broach this one. Essentially, um, this, you, we are all aware and there's more and more evidence coming out of the, the dangers and the, the, um, uh, and the impacts that social media can have on people and have on the end user. And that you know, leads to the incredible um, increase of, of anxiety and depression based on you know, perfectionism and Instagram. All of those, uh, all of those conversations are happening, and that is going to have a roll-on effect to social commerce. Social commerce is a huge engine. We've now got in retailers teams set up that just do that. That's their whole job. And I think, you know, influencer market is another one. There's just so much happening in that space, and our teams everywhere that I think it's uh, this. This is going to get regulated, and that's going to have an impact on social commerce. And we need to start thinking about how we respond to that now because it will impact our numbers. And it might be that there are clear ways that the regulations help uh, take away all of the danger and all of the the negative um, results of social media, but also uh, you know allow social commerce to keep growing. In which case, woohoo, awesome! Uh, but if not, who knows? It could be something we have to think about. Um, I really enjoyed uh, a quote from uh, Ogilvy, the big marketing and brand firm. Uh, they have a person who's called the head of influence, which I'm not going to lie. I'm going to chuck that up now as on my list of things I'd like to be called one day. The head of influence sounds 
super badass. Anyway, uh, Rahul Titus, um, he said influencer marketing, marketing is, quote, supposed to be the authentic side to marketing, but now it churns out such staged content that it is so harmful to anybody looking at social media. Pretty big coming from one of the biggest marketing agencies on the planet. So I think there is something happening there, but I don't know what that is. Um, we shall see. All right, that'll do us for today. Thanks for tuning in to the Andrew Smith Spectacular, also occasionally known as Retailistic. I'm excited that Deborah will be joining back for next week's episode. But until then, please like and subscribe us on your favourite podcast channel of choice as it helps us reach people uh, and we'd really appreciate it. Until next week, I've been Andrew Smith and farewell for now.